Father in heaven, that, uh, that anthem about your love remaining and never changing is profound. It's true. May, may we recognize it today. Whoever we are in whatever place we've come from today, today may we recognize that there's this love you have for us that is of infinite uh, height and depth and breadth and width. And may we recognize that, that it doesn't end. And may we respond to that love. May, may you show us fresh again that your love and your grace are able to save us from ourselves and to give us new life and a new life that you can transform um, until the day we die. Uh, Father, may, may this teaching time, may it be filled not with my words, but with your words. And may it be filled with your spirit speaking to each heart and mind right where they are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Around FCC, this is, this is Baptism Sunday, the first Sunday of May for something like 15 years or so. We've done baptisms on the first Sunday of May. So for much of us that have been around, it's a, it's a fantastic Sunday. We've looked forward to it for a long time. I, I saw a lady after the last service that said this will be her first um, baptism experience at FCC. And I think she's seen a lot of baptisms, which are, everyone is incredible, probably a single person or maybe two or three people. But she said, I've never seen an event with 100 people baptized. And she said, I can't wait to see 100 people baptized and then see a party explode on the end of that uh, with no less than Joe's barbecue and stuff for the kids and all that. So it's, it's a huge day. And, and I'm going to teach today, this is Baptism Sunday, I'm going to teach today about maybe the most difficult and most disturbing passage of the entire New Testament. And uh, I don't think it's even my doing that I teach on it today. We're following this Acts series that's on TV at night. We're following the book of Acts. And, but but as, as I think about it, within this uh, difficult, maybe on the surface disturbing passage, there's this profound love of God that bleeds through. And there's this grace of God that bleeds through. And so my hope and prayer is that... Um, that I don't get in the way, and you can see the love and grace of God deeply and how he would apply it to your life wherever you're at. So uh, if you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. I'm going to talk about Acts 4, 32 to uh, verse 511. I have to, to give you some background, though, because there's some, there's some truth building up to the events of, of the day we're going to read about. The day we're going to read about happened uh, several weeks after the resurrection and after... Uh, after God sends the Holy Spirit and everything. I'm going to go way back and, and just, just start out and say in the very beginning with Adam and Eve when they sinned and all of us have followed in their uh, path, when they sinned, this became this broken world. And into this broken world, after much time, Jesus came into it and, and Jesus died. And in this passage, it's already happened. He, he died to pay for everyone's sin, yours and mine too. He's risen from the dead he showed himself to the apostles and 500 or more other people as well. Now he's ascended to heaven, and the, and the church is launched. God has sent the Holy Spirit onto this planet to live inside of Christ's followers. The church is launched, and, and they are experiencing up to this time, they've been experiencing this, this stunning, fresh reality that the grace of God is so big for them. And they covered the gamut of past life and of sin. They cover the entire gamut. And, and they have just begun to realize that Jesus died and he's given them total forgiveness of their sins. And he's given them a relationship with the God of the universe, a personal connect, the God of the universe. He's given them a brand new life. He has sent the spirit of God to live in them in some mysterious way. And he's given them heaven someday. 
And you can imagine the church at that time, the church, they had to be exploding as they were with telling every single person they could find to say, we have found a new life. It is this stunning, stunning new life. It is all up and to the right. And so Acts 4, verse 32, this is a verse that profoundly affected me when I first began to follow Jesus. It says, so all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There was this love in community, love for one another, and many of them had not even known each other just weeks before. There was this deep bond and deep love that when someone in this community of Christ followers had a need, if someone had any surplus, any excess, they would cash out the surplus or excess, and they would help this other fellow Christ follower meet that need. And it was happening profoundly, and, and no one told them to. It wasn't a command of God. They just did it. Their hearts were so full of the love of God. And it says, it gives one example, one specific example of a man named Barnabas, who we'll read about in Acts for several chapters to come. And it says that, that he was so overwhelmed by love, not just for God, but for his fellow uh, brothers and sisters, that he saw substantial needs. He had a property. He sold the property, and he gave the entire proceeds into the church to meet the needs of those uh, in the church. And uh, the church had to recognize the magnitude of the gift and the the selflessness and the love in that. And so the church, it appears from reading between the lines, the church had to recognize, man, can you believe there's this guy Barnabas that is so selfless. He, He cashed out something important and he could have kept it all for himself. No one would have blinked an eye. He gave every single bit to the church. And they had to think even more, this new life, this is incredible. So you turn to chapter 5, and it says, but. But there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was a full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. And so this begins to unfold. They, they sold something. Very clearly, they saw the esteem with which Barnabas was held, and they wanted the same esteem for themselves, and they had some property to sell, and, and they could keep the property. Nothing. God didn't say, go sell it. They chose to sell it. They could do whatever they wanted with the money. As the passage unfolds, it becomes very clear. Do whatever they wanted. God didn't say, give part or all. But they decide they'll give part of the money but they want to have the esteem that Barnabas has gotten, so they tell the apostles it's all of the money. And so in essence, they, they're the first hypocrites in the church. They're the very first ones to say, look at, look at how good we are. And it's not true. And they know it's not true. They're, they are portraying themselves to be something that they're not. They're putting on this facade, this front, because they want this esteem. And, and, and all of that's been going on. And so Peter is given the information by God through the Holy Spirit that it's a lie. And I'm sure Peter doesn't know what's going to unfold, but he confronts Ananias and he says, so you gave the full amount. And Ananias says, yes. And Peter said, it's a lie. And, and God killed Ananias on the spot, on the spot. His wife isn't there. She comes back three hours later. They've taken his husband, her husband's body away and buried him And Peter confronts her and says, so you sold the property and gave all of the proceeds? And she said, yes. And God kills her right on the spot, and they bury her. And then it says there was this fear that gripped the church. You could imagine, suppose after this service, 
you always sit in the same place. I know you do, because I look around, and you're always in the same place there. And, and I know, too, the people sitting next to you today most likely sat next to you last week and the week before and so forth and everything. And, and so just suppose at the end of this service that you're having a nice little chat with, with a couple next to you, and say the spouse goes to pick up a child. And, and in the conversation, somehow it comes out from the husband that they have begun to tithe to the church. They've begun to give 10% to the church. That's what he says. And suppose that somehow God makes it clear, maybe through you or through Dana from New York, that, that they're not giving 10%, they're giving 6%, which is fantastic, but it's a lie. And suppose on this day, on May the 3rd, that God kills that guy right in front of you, drops dead. And then the wife comes back with the kids, and uh, Dana, because New York people would do this, Dana <laughs> confronts the wife and says, so you tithe, right? And she says, oh, yes, and God kills her on the spot. Can you imagine the emotions? Wouldn't, wouldn't it wreck our perspective of life and following Jesus? And wouldn't we begin to ask questions? And I think even the fact I'm talking about this raises some questions among some. Is, is, did this... Did this really happen, or is this a parable? Is this some story that was made up to teach us a lesson? And clearly, as you read this, clearly God's saying this actually happened. And it raises the question, did God really kill them? Come on, maybe they were so embarrassed or so shocked that Peter knew that they both had heart attacks. It just happened to be at that time. And, and clearly, this is clearly saying that, that God, the God of the universe, killed them. And doesn't that raise the question, but what about grace? And what about forgiveness? And what about the goodness of God and the love of God? Because everything, everything in the Bible up to this point and everything that follows this chapter is all, it's filled with the declaration of the grace of God, the love of God, the goodness of God over and over and over again. And so it begs the question, what's happening here? And, and what does God want us to gain from this? And I've found some of the biggest gains come when we read a passage and it just doesn't make sense. And the gain comes because there's something we haven't grasped until now. And I think this is one of, going to be one of those Sundays for us. It's going to be important to understand that uh, what happened here is, is not the norm for the church. Uh, you've probably figured out by now that, uh, okay, they sinned, they told a lie, they had hypocrisy in their life, so God kills them on the spot. You probably figured out by now that, that God doesn't do that to every Christ follower on the spot, right? You have, right? Because if he did, this place would be empty. I wouldn't be here, and you wouldn't be here. And so, so that happened, in fact, in the entire New Testament. There's nothing else quite like it that happens in the entire New Testament. The New Testament church has just started. It's just begun. It's just begun. And one of the key purposes of the church is to show a watching world just what it's like to live under the rule of a great and good and loving God. That's the purpose of the church. And it's, the church is just launched, and then God does this. And there's this, while the New Testament has nothing at all like this ever occurring again, if you look back in the Old Testament, there's one stunning event that was almost a mirror image for Old Testament times. Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, and chapter 7, verse 1 through 26. And, and this was the time in the Old Testament that God had finally brought his nation Israel together, and he had finally just brought them into the promised land. Just, just weeks earlier, they had just come into the promised land, and the purpose of Israel in the Old Testament in the promised land was for a watching world to look at these people and say, oh my goodness, that's how, 
That's how good and beautiful and glorious it looks to live under the rule of a good God. That was the purpose. And in Joshua, in that passage, there's this one man that commits one sin. There are about three million Israelites. One man commits one sin, and the entire nation suffers for the sin of one man, and God stops it all right there, and he has that man, Achan, killed, on the spot killed. And so there's this, so what I'm saying is there's this parallel. Old Testament, God finally has his people to show the world what it looks like to follow him. And, and there's sin, and God stops it right there makes a statement right there. New Testament, he finally has the church launched to show the world what it's like to have this loving God to to reign over your life. And there's this first sin, God makes this profound statement. It's this this once for all time, thank God, (laughs) statement to the church. And I think it's to help us with this. When we are so convinced, rightfully so, God's grace... And so blown away by God's love, it's easy to lose sight of some key things. And in this event of Ananias and Sapphira, I think God is trying to draw the church's attention, our attention to three key things that we could easily lose sight of. And the first is this. The first is that that sin kills. Sin kills. Sin is always killed. Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God says, if you sin, then you will die. Sin brings death. And it will bring this physical death, which every human being has and will experience. It will bring this spiritual death, this separation from God. And Jesus has fixed that one. For those that trust their life to Jesus, Jesus has died for us. He's fixed that one. I mean, forgiveness covers all of that. It covers all of that. God says it will cause spiritual death. But there's a death. Sin does some killing beyond the, the physical and the spiritual. Ananias and Sapphira... Their sin was this sin of, they were posturing, they were putting on this front. It was this sin of hypocrisy, and hypocrisy kills so many things. Hypocrisy kills spiritual growth within the person who is bearing the hypocrisy, because if I'm not honest with God, God simply won't work in me in that area. If I'm going to pretend before God, if I'm going to pretend before people, God's going to say, I'm going to let you wallow in that. It, It kills spiritual growth. Hypocrisy kills relationships and unity how can we be close if i'm always pretending in front of you pretending to be something i'm not how can you even know me how can there be a real genuine deep relationship how can there ever be unity if i'm living in hypocrisy sin kills sin kills within the person exhibiting hypocrisy it kills the potential for joy and peace because you know you know who you really are and yet you know the facade most of, us, most of us have been there. It kills the chance of joy and peace. And it kills this, this witness to a watching world. The big, big part of God's dream is people watch the church, people that know and follow Jesus, and they see a, a different life. And, and if they look into the church and they see people who are pretending to be something that they're not, it, it turns the watching world decisively away decisively away. Sin kills. It always has. And I think this might be helpful. It's helpful to understand that, that with sin, God didn't, before he created the universe, he didn't lay out all of the possible uh, conditions of our heart and actions and words and didn't say, you know, I don't really care for that one, so I'll make that one a sin. And I don't really like that one. I'll put sin on that one. I don't like that one. He didn't do that. 
This is what sin is. If you're taking notes, for some of you, this is the most profound thing of the entire hour. This is, this is the deal. Sin is simply the label that God has placed on everything that does harm. Sin is, it's no more, no less. It's simply the label that God has placed on everything that does harm. Before the world began, God laid out every condition of the heart possible and every action possible and every word possible. And, and for every single one of those who would cause, cause harm, he put the label sin on it. Like this easy warning label. I, if he would say to us, if you see that I called something sin, then you have to know I did that because that would cause harm. That would cause harm. We know that anger, anger kills relationship and kills our spirits, so it gets the sin label. We know that envy will kill our joy and also kill relationships, so it gets the sin label. Gossip kills unity in relationships, gets the sin label. Lust kills love. We pause that. Lust kills love. You know why? Because lust is all about getting, and love is all about giving. They're polar opposites, and so God's saying, saying lust, it gets this sin label because it does, it does substantial harm. Pride kills spiritual growth. It gets a sin label, and on and on and on. And God just looked across the entire spectrum and said, let me just make it easy for you because I love you. Everything that will cause harm, I put the sin label on that. It's like sin says, danger, do not touch from a loving God. Danger, do not touch. There was an event in my life when I was three. We lived in Brownsville, Texas, deep south Texas, southern tip of Texas. And I don't even recall the event. I was too young to recall it. But I well recall the impact of that event because I can remember being maybe four, certainly four and five and six and beyond. I remember that my brother and I had both been given a toy car. It was a, this spectacular toy car, had moving parts and pieces and tools and all this stuff. And, and it would be the best gift. I got it at three. The best gift I would get at least through the first six or seven years of my life. It was the best gift. We loved, we loved these two toy cars. And what I remember at four and five and six, I remember we, we'd, be, we'd be playing on the floor. And my brother would be rolling his toy car and it would roll beautifully along the floor. And I would roll my toy car and there was this flat tire that would go bump, bump, bump every every roll of the car and I'd be reminded of what my mother would tell me about how the tire got flat and she said back when you were three and the car was new you'd get tired of playing on the floor and you'd play up on the counter you'd roll onto the stove and I told you again and again don't play on the stove because if it gets too close to a burner it will damage the car and I told you again and again and you never listened to me and one day the stove was on and it melted the tire and so and, and they didn't replace the car and so for the next few years, my best toy, my brother has a perfect toy that's smooth, and I play with my toy, and it goes thump, 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 because I got this melted tire on my car. And, and, but my parents gave this warning sign. My, my mother said, if you do this, you will regret it. And God's done that with every single thing that will cause harm. He just simply made it easy, put a sin label on it. And sometimes... We, we have to know that because sin looks so attractive. And we don't see any downside at all. The only thing we have is God's label that sin. And God is saying, I guarantee you this. I guarantee you it will cause harm. It, it will keep, it will keep the, 
the possibility of something very good from happening, it, it will do damage. It will cause harm. It's like this, this sign that says, danger, do not touch. And we can be so appropriately, deeply, deeply, continually stirred by God's grace and deeply struck by the reality that his grace forgives every single sin. And we can, we can readily think, so this next sin isn't that big of a deal because it's going to be forgiven anyway. And, and Ananias and Sapphira, God is saying, you've got to remember sin kills. Sin, even when it's forgiven, sin kills. Sin kills. And it ties to this, this second key learning as well. It ties to this. Though forgiven... Speaking of Christ followers, though forgiven, we often suffer consequences for our sins. Though forgiven, we often suffer consequences for our sins. So, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, we, we will go to heaven. We will get heaven, but jealousy in your life might wreck your friendship. You, you will be forgiven of the jealousy, but the outcome may be you may have a wrecked friendship. Anger may cause deep emotional wounds to someone you love. Jesus has and will forgive you of all of the anger, but it may may cause deep emotional wounds to someone you deeply love. Unfaithfulness in marriage may result in the loss of your marriage, and it may do irreparable harm to your children. You'll be forgiven. You'll be forgiven, but but there's this reminder in in Ananias and Sapphira and what God did there. Even though you're forgiven, you you may often suffer the consequences of the sin. Driving while intoxicated can result in your death or the death of innocent people. You will be forgiven, but it may be at a high, high price. I was reflecting back this week when I was preparing to teach this. Years ago, there was a man in Texas on death row. And sometime in his, the course of his incarceration, he became a follower of Jesus. And the um, declaration of everyone that knew him after the course of several years of him following Jesus, the declaration of everyone, guards and prison people and visitors, was that this conversion was the real deal. That this man had radically changed. And there was deep repentance and remorse and there was unselfishness, and this was a new man. And people would say, it doesn't matter if it's Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. It doesn't matter what day it is. This is a new man. This is the real deal. And so his, his execution was approaching, as it so happened at that time. We had a governor in Texas who was an open, professed follower of Jesus, and his story was of so much wreckage in his own personal life, and he had experienced the forgiveness of Jesus and a second chance from Jesus. That was his profound story. And so there was this appeal made to him as a governor, and the entire state seemed to be watching to see what he would do. And most people seem to think, surely, surely, he's going to give this man a, a reduced sentence because he's experienced the grace of Jesus and forgiveness and a second chance. And whether we believe in that same Jesus or not, he does. Surely he will give this man a second chance. And the time of the execution came, and there, was, there wasn't a second chance, and the man was executed. And, and the, point, the point that struck me this week is this, is not, is not that there was a governor who was a Christian who didn't save the man, but the God in the universe didn't save the man from consequences. God can do anything. He didn't need a Christian governor who had been given a massive second chance by Jesus, but even had that in place. And the God in the, in the universe decided by his actions, decided I will simply let him suffer the consequences 
of his sin. And Ananias and Sapphira, they, they had, if they had surrendered their lives to Jesus, and there's no indication whether they had or not, but as an optimist, I tend to hope and think that they had. If they had surrendered their lives to Jesus, then that day, three hours apart, they stepped into heaven. They stepped into heaven that day. And one might wonder if, if they don't feel that perhaps God was a bit unfair to them because everybody else in that first church, they all sinned also. But they were the one couple that had this consequence. And you might wonder if in heaven, 2,000 years later, if they're just thinking, well, we got a raw deal from God. And I will tell you this, that if you're a follower of Jesus, someday you can ask them in person. You will see Ananias and Sapphira, and you can just go up to them and ask them, do you think God gave you a raw deal? I mean, you didn't sin any worse, man, some others had worse sins, and yet, yet you had the consequence. Your life was cut short. And I'm confident that from the perspective of heaven, they will say, let me explain grace to you. Grace, by definition, means you've been given a great gift that you did not earn or deserve. And they would say, we don't deserve to be here. We didn't earn heaven. It's a gift from God. And look around. Been here 2,000 years. It's never going to end. Are you kidding me? You think God shafted us? You're kidding me? They might even say, have you looked at the history of Jerusalem in the years after we had our lives cut short? Like the church was brutally persecuted. We missed all that. Are you kidding me? Was God unfair? Was God unfair? No, no. But the lesson to us, the lesson that comes down is, is that even though we, we have this forgiveness, we have heaven, we often suffer consequences for our sins. And the consequences probably don't simply end with what's missed in this life. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15 says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we have already have, Jesus Christ. In other words, the foundation of your life, if Jesus becomes the foundation of your life, if you've given him leadership of your life, that's the foundation. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, those are valuable, wood, hay, or straw, those are invaluable. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder's done. Both builders built on the foundation of faith in Jesus. One used gold, silver, jewels, lived their life that way, one wood, hay, and straw. The fire will show if a, if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward, obviously in heaven, a reward. But if the work is burned up, in other words, if they squandered their life here and didn't follow Jesus faithfully, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Forgiven? Absolutely. Heaven? Absolutely. But it's saying that heaven's going to be spectacular for everyone. It's just going to be more spectacular for some who, who found themselves leaning into Jesus and saying, change me, change me, change me. I don't want to continue on with the same life of sin I've had. Change me, change me, change me. The consequences run far and wide. And it can be so easy to forget that because we think grace covers everything. It doesn't always cover the consequences of our sin. Third, third learning, this is the biggest of all. From this passage, what I take away is that God loves his church deeply. He loves his church deeply. It says in chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter is speaking to Ananias and then to Sapphira. And to the first, he says, do you realize that when you lie to the church, you lie to the Holy Spirit? 
You were just lying. You were lying to the Holy Spirit. That's the problem. And then later he says, do you realize when you were lying to the church, you actually were lying to God? And there's this connection that's being made there where God's saying, I, am, I have such deep, deep love and bond to my church that whatever someone does or says to my church, they do it to me as well. Acts chapter 9, verse 4, just a little ways down the road. We'll get to this later on. Uh, Jesus connects and he says, um, if you persecute the church, you persecute me. God's saying, my alignment is so close. Whatever you do or say to my church, you do to me. And so think about how much he loves the church of Christ right down the street. It's a, part, it's a little expression of the church, just like we are. Think how much he loves her, because he says, whatever, whatever we say or do or think toward them, it, it's as though we've said or thought or done that toward him. And think how he feels about Living Stones Church just down the road the other direction. When he says, whatever you think or say or do toward Living Stones, you have thought or said or done toward me. There's this deep, deep, profound love. There's this deep, deep, profound love. And there are other places, not in this chapter, where he calls the church the temple of the Holy Spirit, this sacred place. The church is a sacred place where the Holy Spirit of God lives. Another place he calls the church the body of Christ, the body of Jesus, the most tender one. He calls the church the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom, and the church is his bride. And he loves his church so much that his grace doesn't stop with just giving someone forgiveness in heaven. I'm going to go uh, theological teacher with you for a couple moments here, uh, and I'll explain. Uh, God's grace, theologians talk about, has, it has two major components in his grace. The first they refer to as saving grace. And by that they mean that's the grace that he gives. None of us ever deserve it, but he forgives our sins, he gives us a new life, sends us the Holy Spirit to work within us, gives us heaven someday. And they call that saving grace. And that happens the the moment someone begins to surrender to Jesus. But then they say, his grace doesn't stop there. They say the the second part of his grace is sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace. It means simply that, that his grace will continue to work in our lives with our cooperation, work in our lives to make us increasingly like Jesus. And so he loves us so much, it's not just that he, he takes us as messed up as we are, as broken as we are, and says, I'll forgive all of that, I'll give you heaven. He says, I'll do that, but even better than that, I'm going to give you my grace, which you've not earned, and I'm going to work profoundly in your life, if you cooperate with me, profoundly in your life, and I will make you more and more and more like Jesus. And you don't have to wait till heaven. You won't live in the same junk and rut. I want to change you now. From now until the day you step into heaven, I want to change you now, this sanctifying grace. And there's this profound message here, this profound message here to say, don't lose sight in, in the wonder of forgiveness and grace in heaven. Don't lose sight that his grace doesn't stop there. Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, the, the problem was sin. And God made an example out of them to get our attention and to say to us, I want to change that in you. I, I, I cut their life short, and they're good with that. But I, wanted, I did that to get your attention, to show you I love you so much. I want to change you now. Even the stuff you think can't change. If you cooperate, I want to change you now, profoundly now. Ephesians 5, 25 and 26 
talking about husbands and wives at first. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Now the focus is on Jesus. As Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. To make her holy and clean, to change us now. He loves us so much, he wants to change us now. Hebrews 5, I'm sorry, Hebrews 12, 5 and 6, I won't read it now. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 talks about, it's because he loves you that he, he disciplines you. It's out of love that he disciplines me. And he knows. There's this watching world, and he calls us, he calls us a city on a hill. With the world watching us. And the dream is that they would see us and they would see that's what it's like to live under the rule of a good God. That's what it's like. He calls us the light of the world and he knows there are people that that don't yet know his son Jesus and their world is darkness. And he says, you, the church, should stand up profoundly, brilliantly so they can see that and be drawn to that light. He says, in essence, that, that we are the representation of God's glory on the earth. I think of Ananias and Sapphira. I think about their sin, which in essence was hypocrisy. They just, they put on a facade. They just wanted to be seen as better than they really were. It was as simple as that. And I think through the entire run of my life, the sin within the church that has pushed the most people away has been the sin of hypocrisy. I don't know what it was like 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but the entire run of my life, the, most, the, the sin that's pushed most people back from even exploring Jesus is the sin of hypocrisy in the church. And that's the sin that God picked out with Ananias and Sapphira and said, I'm going to use you as an example. Yesterday, I had some great time with a sold-out follower of Jesus from this church. And this man was telling me about a lunch he just had with a man higher up in his company. And in the lunch, he said... As the conversation was flowing, he had planned this in advance, but he said, I told the man my story. I told the man about my life apart from Jesus, and I told him about how I came to a point of believing in Jesus and how I trusted Jesus, and I told him about the changes that Jesus is making in my life. And then he said, I said to the man, have you ever experienced anything like that before? And the man said, well, I grew up in this town that had one prominent church in it. He named the church. And he said, I got to know some of the most prominent people, the leaders in that church. And I got to watch them pretty carefully in the community. And and I realized that they were just merely hypocrites. And I decided then, and I still believe today, that the church is just religion to cover up and make people look better. We're to be the light of the world, city on a hill, the representation of God's glory on the earth. And God loves us enough, and he loves the watching world enough that that he wants to transform us now. It's Baptism Sunday. I always try to find a really exciting, um, upbeat message to give. And so uh, this one was kind of dropped in my lap because I felt God's prompting for us to do the book of Acts along with this TV show on Sunday nights that's tracking the book of Acts. And so this gets kind of dropped in my lap from that leading. And I realized a few weeks ago on Baptism Sunday, I'm always looking for, let's, God is so good. And I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, oh no. (laughs) 
how is this going to work out? And then the last three or four days, I, I realized this afternoon at five o'clock sharp, there are going to be about a hundred people that have experienced the saving grace of God, the stunning saving grace of God, and every sin forgiven, and a new life launched, and the Holy Spirit living in them, and heaven someday, all of that, we're going to celebrate the the love and grace of God that knows no bounds. We're going to celebrate that, but we as a church won't stop there. We're going to be reminded that there's this ongoing work of grace called sanctifying grace, and God's saying to us as a church that, that the step of faith... And baptism represents that is just the beginning. It is an incredible beginning, but it gets better and better and better because I intend, if you work with me, if you allow me, I intend to change you from head to toe. And I'm going to make you my church. I'm going to make you my church. That toy car that I got at three, for some reason, unbeknownst to me, I kept it through the entire grade school years. And then for some reason, unbeknownst to me, I kept that car while all the other kid toys were all given away or thrown away. I kept that car through my entire teenage run. And I kept that car into my early adult years. And there's a chance I may still have it in a box today. And, And I think looking back, I think I kept that car because there was this melted tire that reminded me that I had a father and mother who guided me in love and wisdom. And the truth is, as I look back over those years, especially the teenage, early 20 years, that, that memory, that truth of a loving and wise father and mother restrained me from so many cliffs I would have gone off. So many times I would think of, there's this melted tire. <laughs> it came on this toy when I was three years old. They knew what they were talking about. And I think God had Luke, who's the author of Acts, record Acts 5 for us to be like this toy car I kept down through all those years, to be this reminder to us that we have a heavenly Father who guides us in perfect love and wisdom. And he gives us this precious, priceless reminder in the midst of grace and love and everything to come, this reminder that sin kills and that though we're forgiven, we often suffer consequences for our sin. And then remind us above all that God loves his church deeply. And that reminder, I think, just might keep us from melting some tires in our world today. Father in heaven.